I remember when we were putting the show together, first thing I said when they said, well, this guy, the guy, well, how about Michael Richards? I went, is he available? Is Michael Richards available? You had to audition with two other guys for the network. Two others? You brought me back three times. And there was a whole room of different people to read was, again. Yeah, but here's like funny. Jess. I knew I was going to get the part. Yes, I knew you did? It even, I knew it on the first time I met you. Really? I knew it. I never said a thing. And I never said it to you. I knew when I started reading with you, just, I just said, yeah, no, they can't pass that up. No. You just feel the hand of the universe going, no, you two are going to be together. But I could have played Kramer for the rest of my life. Yes. That character would fit into any situation. Anything, anything. There was a great universality yes. to the soul of that character. I went to Bali. Get away. Right. Get away for a little while. I like to just right. step away from the world. I go out into the jungle. I'm way deep into the jungle now. And I see some naked people, and they point at me and go, Get up at the Kramer! This is Kramer. They recognize me from the TV show. They had a hut with a cable out there somewhere. They could watch the tele, they had a little television. They watched, they watched the show in the jungles of Bali. You know those performers who just love it? Yeah. I always, it's always a struggle with me. Ah, uh, no, no. I don't accept the judging of process. It doesn't matter that you like to rehearse with your nose up against the flat saying lines. That doesn't matter. You used to see me back there doing yes. that, huh? We're all trying to get to the same island. Whether you swim, fly, surf, or skydive in, it doesn't matter. What matters is when the red light comes on. Okay. Because sometimes I look back at the show and I think I should have enjoyed myself more. Michael, I could say that myself. But that was not our job. Our job is not for us to enjoy it. Our job is to make sure they enjoy it. And that's what we did. Uh, you that's know, what that's we did. beautiful. That's beautiful because I think I worked selfishly and not selflessly. Yes. It's not about me, no. it's about them. Yes. Welcome to Hope, everybody. Uh, my name is Scott Raines. I'm one of the pastors here. The red light is on on the camera, so I guess this matters. Here we go. Um, I'm so glad that you're joining us for worship. We're in a message series called How to Do Life. And we're looking at the Ten Commandments. Today we get to the Third Commandment. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. As we get started, why don't you turn to somebody close to you and just say, Happy Sabbath. Happy Sabbath, everybody. So glad that you're here uh, at worship today. That uh, clip we just watched, Jerry Seinfeld having a conversation with Michael Richards about work. Uh, they used to work together on a TV show. Maybe you've heard of it, Seinfeld. And uh, that line that uh, Seinfeld says kind of toward the end of that conversation is a line I want us to focus in on for a little bit. Uh, we're all trying to get to the same island, he says. And he's talking about process. How do you prepare uh, as an actor or a comedian for a performance? But I want us to think about it a little more deeply than that. We're all trying to get to the same island. And as we dig into the third commandment, I want you to just kind of keep that in the back of your head. What island are we trying to get to? What island are we trying to get to? Uh, Benjamin Honeycutt is a professor at the University of Iowa. Uh, he wrote a book several years ago called Work Without End. Not World Without End, Work Without End. In the book, he explores the history of the Kellogg's plant in Battle Creek, Michigan. It's kind of a, a fascinating history. 
So it was about a year into the Great Depression that W.K. Kellogg, who was running the plant at the time, he made a pretty significant switch in the operations at that plant. He said, we're going to go from three eight-hour shifts every day, and instead we're going to have four six-hour shifts. And he said, the primary reason we're doing it is the Great Depression. Unemployment is rampant in Battle Creek. People need jobs. So we can add about 30% more jobs if we go to four six-hour shifts, which was great for the people who didn't have jobs, but the people who were being asked to go from a 40-hour work week to a 30-hour work week and about a 25% cut in pay, that didn't feel great. So Kellogg recognized this would probably be some pushback. He says to them, I will pay everybody as though you're working seven hours but you only have to work the six-hour shift. They did that for a year, and it worked great. At the end of that year, he said, things are going so great, I'll pay you as though you're working eight hours, but you still only have to work the six-hour shift. And profits and productivity skyrocketed. Uh, it became sort of this national fascination. They sent people from the United States Department of Labor to Battle Creek to interview the employers, interview the workers, ask them, how's it going? What do you like about this shortened work week? And kind of, they, they put the responses into these categories, and there were thematic categories. People would say, here's what we like about a shorter work week. And it all centered on these themes of community and family and freedom. Gives us a greater sense of community and family and freedom just by working 25% less every week. Sociologists came into town and kind of studied what was happening in the community, and part of what they found out was uh, the number of people who were joining, uh, participating in amateur sports like the Parks and Recs Leagues, it was going up. Uh, the number of people who were engaged in civic organizations uh, and community service, that was going up. Worship attendance at churches went up. So I'm making a decree today. Just work 30 hours next week. No. Um, uh, it was a fascinating thing. But again, it's during the Great Depression. Eventually you get to World War II. And the president, FDR, says, we need to support the war effort. We need everybody to work as much as they can work. So they went back to the three eight-hour shifts. But as soon as the war ended, they asked the workers, you can vote. Do you want to keep these eight-hour shifts or go back to the six-hour shifts? And they went back to the six-hour shifts. We're all trying to get to the same island. I'm convinced the island we're trying to get to is Sabbath island. Uh, let me see if I can explain. Uh, the word Sabbath is a Hebrew word. It uh, shows up all over the place in the Old Testament. It's a Hebrew word for rest. We see it in the very beginning uh, in the account of the creation of the heavens and the earth, Genesis chapter 1 and 2. Here's Genesis 2 verse 2, kind of in, the end of that seven days of creation. On the seventh day, God had finished his work of creation, so God rested, God Sabbathed from all God's work. Now, I told you to turn to the person next to you and say, happy Sabbath. Of course, the reality is, biblically, this is not the Sabbath day. Sabbath day began sundown on Friday, and then it ends at sundown on Saturday. Uh, that's the way the people of Israel still, to this day, uh, commemorate the Sabbath uh, Christianity changed things a little bit because Jesus was resurrected on a Sunday morning. People started gathering for worship on a Sunday morning. Whether it's Saturday or Sunday that you think of as the Sabbath day, what most of us think of is this one day of the week, this 24-hour period of time where we do things just a little bit differently. I went to college in, uh, at Central College in Pella, and when I was there, uh, Walmart 
uh, opened up on Sundays. They were the first business in Pella to be open on Sundays, and it was this was in the 1990s, and everyone was just like, I can't. I had a professor who told me he was uh, he didn't grow up in Pella. He was mowing his yard on a Sunday afternoon, and his neighbor came out and scolded him about not honoring the Sabbath day. And I think for many of us, this is what we think of when we think of the Sabbath. But the writer of the New Testament book of Hebrews kind of expands on uh, the idea, the biblical understanding of Sabbath. The writer of the book of Hebrews reminds us the central story of the Old Testament is the story of the Exodus, which is a story of a group of people, a community of people, the family of God going from bondage to freedom. Think about that. In, in Battle Creek, they're talking about uh, community and family and freedom. That's what the Exodus is all about, community and family and freedom. And Moses is the leader and was a great leader. And the writer of the book of Hebrews says, as great as Moses was, as faithful as Moses was, nothing compared to Jesus. Jesus is even greater. And, and so the writer of the book of Hebrews says, you know, the Exodus is all about getting to the promised land, but Sabbath, Sabbath is all about getting to God's promised rest. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 9. So there's a special rest still waiting for the people of God. People in the Exodus, they make it across the Jordan River, they make it into the, the promised land, and it, it actually happened, it physically happened, it was a really good thing for them. And here the writer of Hebrews is saying, that is all just, uh, it's just kind of a, a picture, a metaphor of the real reality that God has for us as we enter into a place of promised rest. You keep reading in verse 10, all who have entered into God's rest have rested from their labors just as God did after creating the world. We just read that, Genesis 2, verse 2. So let us do our best to enter this rest. Let us do our best to enter this special rest that God has for not just the people of Israel, but for all people. Now, I don't know about you, but I think most of us, when we read about the special rest that, we're, uh, that God wants us to enter into in the book of Hebrews, I think most of us, we read that and we immediately think eternity. Uh, this rest, the Sabbath that God has for us is something we enter into after our earthly life ends. And so we think this is uh, talking about heaven and eternity. And certainly there's a part of it that is talking about what awaits us. But remember Jesus. Remember the teaching of Jesus. He is the one that we follow. And when Jesus taught us to think about when he would cast a vision for what does a life of faith actually look like, the primary thing that Jesus would talk about, he called it the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus was insistent. There's a here and now component to this. The kingdom of God is near. The kingdom of God is among you. The kingdom of God is within you, Jesus said. And Jesus taught his disciples to pray for God's kingdom to come, for God's will to be done on earth, as it is in heaven. Like what Jesus continues to do is point us to this reality. There is a special rest that God has for us that we don't have to wait until after we die to experience. We can begin experiencing the power, the gift of Sabbath rest right now in the moment by moment living of our lives. We're all trying to get to the same island. And I'm convinced that island is Sabbath island. Let's look at the actual third commandment. This is Exodus chapter 20, verse 8. It's on the screen. Read it out loud with me. Remember to observe the Sabbath day 
by keeping it holy. The key word there is remember. I'm reading about what's happening at the Kellogg's plant in Battle Creek, Michigan, and for 54 years, 54 years, they keep the four six-hour shifts from December of 1930 until December of 1984. Can you believe that? Some of you were alive in 1984. Like, can you imagine a six-hour, 30-hour work week? What, what changed in 1984? Why did they finally decide to go back to the uh, eight-hour work week? The people who study it say uh, it's consumerism. There were cultural shifts that happened in our country through the 50s, 60s, and 70s. And these cultural shifts caused us to shift values, to forget how valuable community and family and freedom is. And instead, we placed a higher value on commodities and our ability, our purchasing power. That's what we want. So in order to buy more of the stuff that we think is going to make us happy, we need to work longer hours. It was a shift that caused us to forget rather than remembering the Sabbath. A guy named David Myers was a professor at Hope College in Holland, Michigan for uh, 40 years. And uh, he got his PhD at some place called uh, the University of Iowa, so he's a really smart, trustworthy guy. He wrote a book called The American Paradox in 2001. 2001. But look at the subtitle, Spiritual Hunger in an Age of Plenty. And, and a big part of what he does in the book is he describes how good life in America got, particularly in the decades following World War II. Here's what I want us to do. Everybody stand up. Everybody stand up. And uh, find somebody close to you. If you see somebody who doesn't have anybody to talk to, would you please go over and talk to them? Here's what I want you to talk about. What are the advantages we enjoy today that our parents and grandparents did not have? So, like, I remember I used to be the remote control in our house. <laughs> You'd have to get up and walk to the actual TV to change the, with, the three channels that could come in if we had the antenna just right. Anyway, what are some, maybe it's a technological advantage, maybe it's something else. What are some advantages we enjoy today that parents and grandparents did not have? Talk amongst yourselves for a little bit. Thanks for playing along, everybody. You can sit back down. You know, the first thing that comes to my mind is uh, online grocery shopping and delivery. When, when I fill out my Aldi order and, and make the purchase, at the end of it, there's a, a screen that comes up that says, here's how many hours you have saved by not coming into our store and shopping. It's just crazy. So what, what would you think if I told you? In the 1960s, uh, 1967 to be exact, 
expert testimony was given to the United States Senate that said, uh, because of all of this time-saving technology, Americans are gonna have more time than they know what to do with. And what the experts predicted, the experts predicted by the time we get to the 1990s and the early 2000s, Americans are all gonna be working 30-hour work weeks like the people at Battle Creek, Michigan, or, or 30 weeks out of the year, 22 weeks of vacation. <laughs> all of this innovation, all of this technology, and people who are lucky enough, this is what they predicted, people lucky enough to live in the early 2000s, man, they're really gonna be experiencing the good life. So, lots of, I put advantages in quotes because I think we can have conversations about whether or not these things are advantages or not. But let, let's look at the whole picture. Yes, there's been a lot of technological innovation. There's been other stuff that has happened in uh, these decades as well. This is part of what uh, David Myers talks about. In the 40 years from the uh, 50s to the 90s, in this country, the divorce rate doubled, teen suicide rate tripled, violent crime rates quadrupled, prison population quintupled, uh, babies to unmarried parents, I mean, these are just the stats, but it sextupled. All right, I'm the only one that thinks that's funny. I, <laughs> be, I, have I not taught you we can laugh at church? <laughs> Cohabitation up sevenfold, depression more than tenfold. And again, he's writing the book, he's getting these stats 20 years ago. I'm guessing they haven't improved a lot in the last two decades. Sobering statistics. Uh, University of Michigan researchers asked Americans, what is it that's hampering you, uh, hindering you, holding you back? from experiencing the good life, and the number one answer was, uh, we're short of money. We need more money. So they asked them, how much money do you need? 1987, uh, the average American response was, in order to fulfill my dreams, to feel like I've kind of made it in life, if I could be making $50,000 a year, that would do it. Just eight years later, in 1995, now they're asking the same question, $90,000 a year, almost doubled. So then they started looking at, well, what has income actually been doing over the years? Uh, and here's part of what they noticed in, from the late 50s to the late 90s, personal income when you adjust for inflation. So people were making uh, $9,000 a year. That was the average income in America in 1957. In 1998, $20,000 a year. So actual income, our buying power, more than doubled in those 40 years. And everyone is convinced, if I just have more money, life will be better, I will be happier. So while personal income was going up those same 40 uh, years, personal happiness was declining. When they asked people, are you very happy? In the late 50s, 35% of people said, yes, I'm very happy. In the late 90s, it, it dropped just a little bit down to 30% of people said they were very happy. But the number of people who said they were downright miserable increased dramatically. And so uh, once we get to the 2000s, we have young people who are growing up with much more affluence, uh, slightly decreased levels of happiness, a much greater risk of depression. All of these innovations, all of this technology, all the advantages uh, that you and I have, all the increased riches, and it's not making us any happier. We're all trying to get to the same island. I, I'm convinced a lot of people think the name of the island is the American dream. 
life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, but the way we pursue it is all connected to stuff and money. But decade after decade and generation after generation, research shows us this is a futile pursuit. What scripture teaches is we're all trying to get to Sabbath Island. Last week, we talked about our nervous system just a little bit, and the people who understand what's going on inside us uh, through the moments of our lives, they say sometimes our nervous system is in a regulated place, sometimes it's in a dysregulated place, because there's all sorts of stress and pressure and worry and fear that we face on a day-to-day basis. It it causes our uh, insides, our nervous system, to get a little out of alignment. And we talked last week just a little bit about how a woman named Deb Dana says, part of what it means to grow and mature as human beings is to get to a place when we're in that uh, dysregulated place, do I have the tools to get myself regulated again? Uh, When I'm feeling overwhelmed, and out of control, and life is chaotic? Do I have the tools to quiet my mind and my heart and my body? And when we're in that kind of place, the word of the Lord comes to us. Remember the Sabbath. Remember the Sabbath. Like, yes, it's a commandment. It's the third commandment. But it might be more helpful to think of uh, the third commandment is God's gift to us. God gives us the gift of Sabbath. This is how Jesus talks about it. Mark chapter 2, verse 27. It's on the screen. Read it out loud with me. The Sabbath was made to meet the needs of people and not people to meet the requirements of the Sabbath. It's less about a commandment for you to follow and more about understanding there's a God who loves you, who has this gift for you that's actually going to help you experience the best kind of life. I think sometimes... We maybe read the words of Jesus here and say, okay, so Jesus is saying Sabbath is keeping, it's, it's a form of self-care. Sometimes I need a long uh, soak in the hot tub, and sometimes I need a, a massage, and sometimes I need to practice Sabbath. No, that's not what Jesus is saying. Much bigger, much deeper than that. That conversation that Jerry and Michael were having in that clip at the beginning They get to a a place of agreement as they're talking about the focus of work, and and they say the focus can't be on ourselves. It cannot be a selfish, self-centered pursuit. It has to be selfless. What am I giving to others? What am I bringing to others? What am I doing for others? To remember the Sabbath is to remember God's call to take the focus off of ourselves. Sabbath gets us to a place where we can be more present with God, more present with the people in our lives. And, And part of the way Sabbath does this Sabbath forces us to move from production to presence. It's less about what do I do when I stop to remember the Sabbath, and it's more about who can I be? How am I being? Who am I being with the people in my life and with the God of my life? One of the ways Sabbath takes our focus off ourselves is by appointing us to issues of justice. As as you read through the commandment in uh, Exodus chapter 20, part of what God reminds the people. So as God is teaching the people of Israel, here's what Sabbath keeping is all about. God reminds them, you have servants, you have foreigners, and make sure that they are resting on this day as well. Don't you dare ask them to work when you're Sabbathing. This is the seventh day, it's for all people. And the seventh day points us biblically to the idea of the 70th year. The 70th year, which they never actually got to. The 70th year was commanded by God, 
This gift that God gives us, the 70th year is the year of Jubilee. It's a year where freedom would reign through the whole community. Prisoners would be set free. Slaves would be set free. If you had a debt, it would be forgiven in the year of Jubilee. And this was God's plan for freedom to reign in God's community. We're all trying to get to the same island. One of the things that Sabbath does for us, it it reminds us we're in this together. It, It creates a worshiping community because we gather together to worship on the Sabbath. And, and part of what happens when we gather together for worship, again, it takes our focus off ourselves. It's a reminder there is one God. It's not me. It's not the person sitting beside me or in front of me or behind me. There's one God, and it's not me. I'm not in control. God is in control. But part of what has happened culturally in this country, this shift to this sort of consumeristic mindset, we think everything we have, we think all of this stuff, all, all the advantages that we can purchase and take advantage of because we have enough money to buy it, we think this is going to help us be in control in our lives. We live with the illusion of control. And Jesus has some things to say about people who think they are in control. In Luke chapter 12, Jesus tells a story to teach us a little something about it. The story begins in verse 15. Watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. You're looking for something. There's an island you're trying to get to, and Jesus is saying, this is not it. Keeps on going, tells them a story. A rich man had a fertile farm that produced fine crops. He said to himself, what should I do? I don't have room for all my crops. He said, I know, I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. Then I'll have room enough to store all my wheat and other goods. I'll sit back and say to myself, my friend, you have enough stored up for many years to come. Now take it easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, these are the words of Jesus. God said to him, you fool. You will die this very night. Then who will get everything you worked for. And Jesus ends the story in verse 21. We'll put it up on the screen. Read this out loud with me. This is how it will be with those who store up things for themselves but are not rich toward God. Kind of an interesting phrase, isn't it? Rich toward God. If we were to talk to the people who know you best, the people closest to you, how long would it take before they would say, you know, one of the things I notice about Scott, one of the things I really love about Scott is Scott is rich toward God. These were radically countercultural words when Jesus spoke them 2,000 years ago. They're even more radical and countercultural today. We are a people who like to store up things. Uh, we have staff meeting uh, around here every once in a while, and um, every once in a while in staff meetings, someone will say, you know what we could really use is more storage around here. <laughs> I, rich toward God. How much time have you spent in the last year fretting about the economy, watching the stock market just kind of tumble, watching your 401k or your retirement investments just getting shredded? How much time have you spent talking about gas prices and food prices and inflation just in the last year? 
people are going to go and vote next month. And for millions of Americans, really only one thing on their mind is they vote. It's the economy, stupid. Rich toward God. Did you know in, in our economy, there is a uh, segment of the economy that's all focused in, is in industries being built around creative storage. We have so much stuff that we need to create new and inventive ways of storing all the stuff we're not using. Jerry Seinfeld, decades ago, did a uh, little comedy bit on creative storage. Take a look. <laughs> when you're moving, your whole world becomes boxes. That's all you think about is boxes. Where are there boxes? You just wander down the street going in and out of stores. Are there boxes here? Have you seen any boxes? I mean, it's all you think about. You can't even talk to people because you can't concentrate. Shut up, I'm looking for boxes. <laughs> Just after a while, you become like really into it. You could smell them. You walk in the store. There's boxes here. Don't tell me you don't have boxes. I can smell them. I'm like obsessed. I love the smell of cardboard in the morning. You could be at a funeral. Everyone's mourning, crying around, and you're looking at the casket. That's a nice box. Does anybody know where that guy got that box? When he's done with it, you think I could get that? It's got some nice handles on it. And that's what death is, really. It's the last big move of your life. The hearse is like the van. The pallbearers are your close friends. The only ones you could really ask to help you with a big move like that. And the casket is that great, perfect box you've been looking for your whole life. The only problem is, once you find it, you're in it. Part of the wisdom of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Part of what Jesus is saying here, uh, nothing wrong with storing stuff. There's like this God-given instinct we all have to store stuff. The question is, are you storing stuff that lasts? Stuff that is eternal? Or is your focus on things that are here today and gone tomorrow? We're all trying to get to Sabbath Island, but many of us are living with this illusion that we're in control. And part of what Jesus does is remind us, your life is not your own. Your stuff is not your own. This life that you think you have created, you did not orchestrate it. It's all a gift from God. And it's all on loan to you. And one day the loan's going to come due, just like it did for the guy in Jesus' story in Luke chapter 12. And when the loan comes due, then what will you do with all this stuff you have stored up for yourself? Uh, he was a smart guy, a bright guy, a successful guy, this guy in Luke chapter 12. Just like a lot of people in our church, in our community, really bright and uh, successful, clever but we're often, we're often just propped up by this illusion of control. My life is all about me. There is one uh, reality that will remind every single one of us how little control we actually have. We don't like to talk about it. We don't like to think about it. But it's pretty important for followers of Jesus, pretty important for people who live a life of faith, and that is the reality of death. So I want to tell a story to kind of help us maybe remember 
that the island we're really trying to get to is Sabbath Island. Uh, my three brothers and I grew up on a farm uh, just outside of New Providence, Iowa, about an hour north of here. And in the wintertime, we loved to play Monopoly with my mother, uh, particularly when it was a snow day. Because have you noticed it takes a long time to play Monopoly? So when there was a snow day, we'd go get our sledding done. And then when we were too cold to sledding more, we'd come inside, set up the card table, and we would uh, get ready to play Monopoly like for the rest of the day. And uh, one of the things you need to know, uh, my mom is super kind and super sweet, one of the most uh, soft-spoken people you'd ever want to meet, but she's one of the most ruthless Monopoly players you could ever play with. You know, remember, you, you start the game of Monopoly, they give you a pile, a wad of money. And when I was a boy, I just wanted to hold on to that money. It was just amazing. Not mom. She knew money was the name of the game. Acquisition. This is how you keep score. And so she would spend all her money. She would buy every property she landed on, mortgage it to the hilt so she could buy more property. Eventually, she would become the master of the board. And I would land on one of her properties one too many times, and I'd have to give her my last dollar and quit in utter defeat. And then mom would pat me on the head, and she would say, it's okay, Scotty, one day you'll learn to play the game. Uh, I hated it when she said that to me. <laughs> Well, one summer, it must have been a particularly rainy, wet summer, and we were inside a lot. My brothers and I played Monopoly all summer long. That was the summer I learned to play the game. I learned it's dog-eat-dog, dog, every player for themselves, look out for number one, money's how you keep score, acquire, acquire, acquire. That was the summer I learned to become the master of the board. And so when the next winter came and we finally had a snow day, I was ready. I was more ruthless than my mother. I was playing with sweaty palms. I was willing to cheat if I needed to in order to beat my mother at Monopoly. <laughs> Slowly, cunningly, I exposed the soft underbelly of my mother's strategic weakness. Relentlessly, inexorably, I drove her off the board. The game does strange things to you. I can still remember where it happened. It was at Marvin Gardens. I looked at my mother, this is the woman who gave me life and had raised my brothers and me, and I looked her in the eye and I destroyed her financially and psychologically. <laughs> and I watched her hand over her last dollar and quit in utter defeat. It was the greatest moment of my as yet young life. And then my mom had one final lesson to teach me. It's the great lesson that always comes at the end of the game. She said to me, now, Scotty, it all goes back in the box. All that money, all those houses, all those hotels, it all goes back in the box. I didn't want it to go back in the box. I wanted to keep it out, uh, bronze it maybe as a memorial to my ability to play the game. Can I at least write my name and the amount of money I had accumulated on this date on the inside of the box cover so we can always come back and see that? No, Scotty, it all goes back in the box. He was a shrewd guy, this guy in Jesus' story in Luke chapter 12. He learned to play the game, and he played the game really well. Just forgot one tiny detail. The game will end one day. For that guy and for each one of us, it'll all go back in the box. And then what? I guess I've been thinking about death a lot the last week because I've, I think I've been in three different rooms, hospice and hospital rooms where 
uh, people were in the final hours of their life. Yesterday morning, we had a funeral here for Vicki Lemke. Uh, Vicki's been around Hope Ankeny as long as I can remember. She and her grandkids, uh, Dom and Ari, they were one of the few people who would sit in the front row with my family and me when we were worshiping in the gym just down the street. And in the middle of Vicki's funeral yesterday, we had a time where people could just share uh, thoughts, uh, memories, uh, stories about their connection with Vicki, what she meant to them. And at one point, a young woman, early 20s, she got up and she said her name was Olivia. She met uh, Vicki and Vicki's family when she was 14 or 15 years old and life was really hard those teenage years for her, she said. She said she immediately told Vicki, I do not believe in God. There's no God. And Vicki said, okay, would you come with us to hope? And so Olivia started coming with them to worship on Sundays. She started coming with them to Power Life in Ignition on Wednesday nights. And yesterday morning, Olivia said, today I have a really strong faith in Jesus Christ. And my life is good. And I'm so grateful for Vicki. What does it mean to be rich toward God? To store up treasures that last, that make an eternal difference. So easy for us to forget in the moment-by-moment moment living of our lives where all this is going and what it is that matters most and where should our focus be. And when I find myself in that kind of place, I like to reread this, I don't know, it's a reflection written by a woman named Mary Jean Irion. I've read it a couple times to you, but I feel like it's time for us to be reminded of this again. Uh, she was a poet and an essayist uh, until her death in 2019. She was 96 years old when she died. This is called Gift from a Hairdryer. Comb and dry, comb and dry. Soon I won't be able to do this anymore, you say to yourself knowing that that straight little bob must inevitably yield to grown-up coiffers and ugly curlers. What will she be like at 14? Where will her hair be blowing then? And 16 and 18. You suppose boys will love to watch her hair blow as you do now, and some of them will feel it on their faces, and one of them will marry her. And her hair will be perfect under the veil. And there will be her hair spread out on his pillow. Oh, you hate him a little. And wonder where he is at this moment. And whether he'll be good to her. They will grow old together. The gold-brown hair will be gray. And you will be gone. And then she will be gone. This very hair that now your fingers smooth. And all the tears of the world swim for a second in your eyes as you snatch the plug out of the socket suddenly and gather her into your arms, burying your face in the warm hair as if you could seal this moment against all time. But of course you cannot. Because moments come and moments go. And the wisdom of the God who loves you the God who created you is to stop and slow down and rest. Pay attention to what matters most. 
to remember the Sabbath? What's going to get you the good life? What's going to help you fulfill your dreams that actually has nothing to do with money? It has everything to do with making room for God in your relationships, in the moment-by-moment living of your life and decisions that you have to make. It's what remembering the Sabbath is all about, making room for God. Once a week, sure, but every single day of our lives. We're not going to be perfect at it, so every once in a while we just need to be reminded. Regroup, recenter, refocus, make room. Let's stand together, and as we sing this last song, make room for God to do what God needs to do in you.